Good morning, everyone. It is a privilege to be here. My name is Brennan Coughlin. I pastor Fellowship Community's Daughter Church up in Trenton, Fellowship Capital City. And we just want to take a minute, my wife and I, uh, Kathleen, as well as our kids, we want to express to you our gratitude for your partnership in advancing the gospel in Trenton. Specifically, want to thank Pastor Mark, as well as the other pastors and the deacon board for supporting us as missionaries. We also want to thank Pastor Mike, his summer interns, and his high school students who joined us for Trenton Week back in July uh, to advance the gospel in the city, so we are grateful for them. And I also want to specifically express our gratitude to the individuals and families here at Fellowship Capital City who partner with us as prayer supporters and financial supporters. The great pioneer missionary to India, William Carey, said to the Baptist Missionary Society in 1793, I will go down if you will hold the rope. You are our rope holders. Thank you for holding the rope. One of the reasons that we moved to Trenton was we wanted to help start a pregnancy care center for women experiencing a crisis pregnancy. We want them to experience the love of Jesus Christ. We want them to have hope in what feels like a hopeless situation. And we also want to make sure that Planned Parenthood ain't the only game in town. Amen? Amen. So we are currently in negotiations for that brownstone building right next to Planned Parenthood to rent that. Our desire is to set that up as our church office as we gather support, funds, and put together a team to start a pregnancy care center for women. So I'm asking that you would join us in praying, asking the Lord to make the owners of that building amenable to our vision for a pregnancy care center. Uh, We know that setting up shop next to Planned Parenthood, we are asking for trouble, we are asking for a spiritual battle, and we are asking you to pray that the owners of this building would be inclined to let us use it for that specific purpose. So thank you for joining with us in prayer. It is a privilege to be a part of your sermon series, Every Story His Name. And in fact, yes, every story in the Bible, whether you start in Genesis or you move all the way through Revelation, every single story in the Bible ultimately is pointing to God's redemptive plan that culminates in King Jesus. So it's a privilege to join you in that this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 114. If you're using a pew Bible, depending on the version you have, that'll be page 435 or page 493. But I invite you to turn in your Bibles, hold the word of God in your hands for yourself, and we'll dive in together. Psalm 114 falls within what scholars call the Egyptian Hallel. That's Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Those six psalms or songs, they functioned as the worship set for the Passover celebration. So we just got done singing a five-song worship set, singing praises to God. If you were a Jew celebrating Passover, you would sing Psalms 113 through 118 to celebrate, to commemorate the Passover. And what's really cool is if you go to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is in the upper room the night before he's killed, he's with his disciples, they're celebrating the Passover, and Matthew specifies that they sang hymns together. Among those hymns would have included Psalm 114. 
Let's go ahead and read it together. When Israel came out from Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it, sea, that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, mountains, did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Tremble. Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. We come before you this morning representing a multitude of spiritual needs. There are people questioning their faith in this room. There are people suffering with addiction in this room. There are marriages on the rocks in this room. There are parents with wayward children who are hurting here in this room. But no matter what the spiritual circumstances, we all have one great spiritual need right now. Father, we need an encounter with the living, breathing, sovereign, glorious God of the universe. So, Father, I ask that you would come now as we open up your word, you would open up our hearts. Father, I pray that you would make me faithful to Psalm 114, that you would be pleased to speak through that not one word would come out of my mouth that would dishonor you. Would you feed your people? We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 114 reminds us that every single human being shares a soul desire to be awed by something bigger than ourselves. What is it for you? There are some people who will spend a lot of money and stand in ridiculously long lines to ride a 60-second roller coaster because G-force power and high speed is exhilarating for you. But I know some of you are a little bit different. Perhaps you're the kind of person who would put a backpack on and hike the 8,800 feet to the top of Half Dome and look down at the beautiful creation. Look down at Yosemite Valley and just stand in awe of the wonder of God's creation. For me personally, I love roller coasters. I love national parks. But there's something about being in the presence of sheer, unadulterated, raw, natural power. When we visit the zoo as a family, my favorite exhibit is the big cats. I love the big cat exhibit. If you've been to the Philadelphia Zoo, maybe you've been in their big cat exhibit. They have this theater. You walk into this theater, and you have these HD screens, and they have the surround sound, and there's this incredible footage of, of leopards and, and lions and tigers, and I'll, you have like a tiger grabbing a caiman out of a river. I mean, it's incredible. It's like sensory overload. It's exhilarating. But one time, a couple years ago, we were there, and here I am, pushing a quad stroller through the zoo. <laughs> and all of a sudden, in the midst of this video footage, I hear this door creaking open behind me, and I turn around and I see this zookeeper. She's in like stealth mode, 
and she's going in this restricted access door carrying a bucket of raw meat. This looks pretty interesting. (laughs) So I kind of lean over and look in the doorway, and I see about 10 feet away from me to the first pew, a 400-pound lion behind a cage. Now, we had just come from the lion exhibit, but I got to be honest with you. Staring at sleeping lions behind thick plexiglass is not particularly exhilarating. But this was a different story. Now, the lion, seeing the zookeeper and her bucket of meat, stands up immediately and starts licking its chops. Now, I know it's a restricted access door, but I could not help myself. I leaned all the way in, poked my head in, And this lion sees my movement and locks eyes with me. I'm telling you, this lion was staring into my soul. (laughs) And I promise you, he was speaking to me through those sullen eyes. And this is what he said. He said, yo, Slim, check it out. (laughs) I eat meat from a bucket. But I want you to know, I would much rather eat And it was glorious. It was glorious, exhilarating fear surged through my body because I stood there knowing, and then the lady closed the door, but I stood there knowing that if you open the cage, 400 pound of cat is going to devour me. And it was awesome. It was awesome to be in the presence of that animal. Can I tell you that every single human soul has been hardwired by the God of the universe to yearn for glory. To long to be in the presence of grandeur, of something so majestic and so glorious and so much greater than anything in our natural world. That is the longing of every human soul. And I believe that is what the psalmist is pointing us to in Psalm 114. The psalmist is recounting the story of God supernaturally intervening for his people Israel and leading them out of Egyptian slavery. This is the main idea that I want us to take from Psalm 114 this morning. When creation witnesses God's redemptive supernatural power, the whole earth trembles at the presence of God. And we should, too. That's what I want you to walk out those doors with this morning. But don't take my word for it. Don't ever believe anything any preacher ever says to you unless he can show it to you from the book. Amen? So let's open up the book together. Psalm 114, verse 1. When Israel came out from Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongues. Now, we as 21st century readers of the Bible, we read the first part of verse 1, and it's a historical footnote for us. Oh, that's right. That's what Exodus is all about. Oh, yeah, I remember. I saw the Disney movie. I remember that. If you are a 5th century B.C. Jew, and you are reading Psalm 114, verse 1, this is not a historical footnote. This is a recollection of the greatest redemptive event in your nation's history. This is of the utmost importance to the Jews. 
They were not only brutalized for 400 years under oppression in Egypt, but they were subjected to male infanticide. You remember this? Pharaoh is so afraid of the growing Israelite population that he declares that every male born to an Israelite family must be drowned in the Nile River. And if you were a Jew in bondage in Egypt, if you were among God's chosen people, you weren't feeling particularly chosen in those four centuries. In fact, you felt as if you'd been rejected by God. Brothers and sisters, we all go through difficult seasons in our lives, but know this, just because you can't see God moving and working doesn't mean that he is not moving and working. And he moves mightily on behalf of his people. He raises up a man named Moses, right? He calls Moses, and through Moses, he sends him back into Egypt to perform 10 miraculous signs. This is God working through Moses, culminating with the angel of death who comes over Egypt to take the lives of every firstborn son. Look at how the script's been flipped. You see that? Every firstborn son and every Egyptian and Israelite household is going to be struck down by the angel of, of death. But God made a way for his people. He said, you are to take the lamb, sacrifice the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost of your house, and the angel of death will pass over. Not one Israelite son was killed, but every single Egyptian household lost a son, including Pharaoh's. He finally had enough. He said, get out of here, and Moses marched the Israelites out of Egypt. Psalm 114.1 is not a historical footnote for God's people. It is a reminder of God's supernatural intervention and making a way for his people. The lamb died instead of them. God moved in a mighty way. But not only does he remind them of God's miraculous intervention, he's also reminding them who they once were. Now, if you are an Israelite during King David or King Solomon's reign, yo, you're kicking butt and taking names. You are the leading preeminent superpower in the ancient Near East. Things are going all right. The psalmist is reminding them, don't forget who you were. They were an enslaved people oppressed by a foreign power without any human hope in this world, and God intervened. If you sit here this morning, this is lesson one from the text, if you sit here this morning as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to remember who you were. Because you were enslaved. You were in bondage to your sin, and humanly speaking, you were hopeless to break free of that. Yet God was pleased to rescue you from your sin. Don't forget, don't forget about who you once were because we appreciate who we are now in Jesus Christ. Verse two, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. This signifies God's special relationship with his people Israel. 
Judah, representative of all the Israelites, became his sanctuary, or in the Hebrew, his kodesh, his kodesh. What does that mean? You actually already have a good understanding of what that means. I want you to think with me, Exodus chapter 3. Moses has fled Egypt. He's out in the land of Midian. He's, he's a shepherd. He's out in the middle of the desert, and he sees this bush on fire. But the branches and the leaves of the bush are not being consumed by the flames. So he walks over to see what's going on, and then all of a sudden, boom, the voice of God comes resonating from that bush. Exodus 3, verse 5, God says to Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is Kodesh. It is holy ground. It is the place where God's presence resides. At that moment, God's presence was there in front of Moses. But here's the thing. Verse 2 is reminding us that God did not merely rescue Israel so they could be out of slavery. He rescued Israel ultimately so that he could dwell with his people, so that they could become his Kodesh, the place where God dwells in his infinite holiness. So he tells them to build a tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle and the holy of holy place where the very Kodesh, the presence of God, dwells with his people. Let's see what creation does when it encounters God's holy presence. Look at verse 3. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. Notice the personification. The, the psalmist is ascribing human qualities to inanimate objects or objects that do not live, they do not breathe, they do not speak, they do not have a soul. But he's leveraging personification with great rhetorical effect. The sea looks. The Jordan turns back. Now, the psalmist is assuming biblical literacy here, which would be a very dangerous thing to do in the 21st century. But his audience knows that the sea is, of course, the Red Sea, and the Jordan is the Jordan River. What's the significance of the Red Sea? The sea looked and fled. If you remember in Exodus chapter 14, so Pharaoh has driven the people, I said, get out of here. Moses is marching them out. And all of a sudden, they're coming up to the Red Sea. But Pharaoh changed his mind for like the 67th time in Exodus, and he sends his army after them, chariots bearing down on them. This is shock and awe. This is the greatest military the world has ever seen up to this point, and they are bearing down on God's people. They have nowhere to go. They're freaking out, and Moses says, calm down and trust God. And then God comes and intervenes. He comes in a pillar of cloud. He protects them from the Egyptians, and he has Moses pray all night long. The text says this, the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and the sea became dry land. Now, an interesting thing has happened in the past about 150 years in so-called biblical scholarship. You see, coming out of the Enlightenment, mankind began to think that he, through scientific knowledge and observation, can come up with all the answers. 
So biblical, so-called biblical scholars, they started studying these type of events in the Bible, and they said, you know what? There is a perfectly natural, logical explanation for this. You see, when a new moon comes up in the lunar cycle, it messes with the tides, and you get extreme high tides and extreme low tides. And if you whip up a significant wind, then all of a sudden, oh yeah, you can walk out into the sea on dry ground. Many of you have been to the shore. Maybe you've seen that before. Maybe you've walked your little kids out 150 yards on dry ground. And maybe you're thinking, that's awesome, just a great coincidence where they're able to escape. I've seen that before at the Jersey Shore. No, you haven't. You haven't seen this before. Verse 22, Exodus 14 says this. This is Moses writing, who, by the way, was there and saw it with his own eyes. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This explanation leaves zero room, zero room that this is natural. This is supernatural, this is miraculous, this is God's intervention, or it's a lie. It's either true or it isn't true, but it can't be sort of true. Are you with me there? It either happened or it didn't happen. Now, if you're in this room this morning and you consider yourself somewhere within like the general Christian zip code, if you're somewhere on the Christian spectrum and you have some semblance of, of inclination towards the Bible, then there's, there's going to come a point in time when you are reading the word of God where you're going to have to ask yourself, is this true? Is this true? And it's either true or it isn't true. And if you want to take this and dismiss it as natural circumstances, then guess what? You're going to run into trouble when you encounter the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Muslims have figured it out. Muslim scholars call it the swoon theory. You see, Jesus never actually died on the cross. He went into shock. They buried him. He had three days to recover, and then he walked out of the tomb. No resurrection. It either happened the way the Bible says it happened, or it didn't. But it can't be in between. And there's going to come a point in time when you are reading God's word where you're going to have to decide for yourself. Can you trust the veracity of the word of God? Can you stake your life on it? The author continues, he says, the Jordan turned back. He's talking about the Jordan River, Joshua chapter three. 12 men are carrying the Ark of the Covenant of Israel. They're carrying it on poles, on their shoulders. They're approaching the line of demarcation for the promised land. You cross over the Jordan, that's the promised land. But how are we gonna cross? God shows up. Supernaturally, he stops the Jordan River. Joshua three says there was a wall of water. They walked across on dry ground. God miraculously intervenes. And then if you jump to verse 8 of Psalm 114, the psalmist is recollecting Exodus chapter 17. The Israelites are wandering through the desert in the Sinai Peninsula. They don't have any water. And God supernaturally brings water from the rock through Moses. He provides for his people. Now you may be here this morning thinking, you know what? 
I'm familiar with the stories you're talking about. I believe in, 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 in God's supernatural intervention, but you know what? Why doesn't God perform miracles in my life? Why doesn't he intervene in my life supernaturally? Well, if you are sitting here this morning having trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you've been reconciled to Almighty God, think with me for a minute. Scripture says that we were spiritually dead in our trespasses. We were spiritually dead. We were spiritually blind to the greatest reality in the universe, namely Jesus Christ. And then something happened. We went from spiritual death to spiritual life. We went from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. John chapter 3. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a believer because God has performed a miracle in your life. That is the only explanation for salvation. If you think that somehow you are so smart and so observant that you studied the scriptures for yourself and intellectually ascended to the gospel and you said, yes, this is me, I believe it. Well, guess what? Paul puts you in your place. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. He says, no, 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 it is by grace through faith that you have been saved, not your own doing, so that no man may boast. You are a believer in Jesus Christ by the sheer grace of God who has worked a miracle in your life. That's lesson number two. Remember that salvation is a miracle. Look with me now at verse four. Let's see how inanimate creation responds to God's presence. Take a look, verse four. The mountains leaped, or in the ESV it says, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. This is beautiful poetic imagery to describe an actual historical event. Exodus chapter 19. This is when Moses gets the 10 commandments from God. God tells Moses, listen man, I want you to get all my people and I want you to gather them around the bottom of Mount Sinai because I'm showing God descends on the mountain in this glorious cloud and the Israelites see God and they start shaking in reverent fear. And then Mount Sinai starts shaking in reverent fear. That's what the psalmist is referring to. The mountain itself is shaking at the presence of almighty God. Now let's see the climax of Psalm 114, verses five through seven. Look at the text. Why was it, sea, that you fled? Why, Jordan, that you turned back? Why mountains that you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Again, with the power of poetic imagery, the psalmist is now questioning creation. You see what's happening here? He's questioning creation. He's saying, oh, Red Sea, what's the matter? You seem scared. Jordan River, what's causing you to turn back? Oh, Mount Sinai, is everything all right? You're shaking like a little baby. Everything okay? You see what this is? This is 2,500-year-old trash talk. <laughs> That's what the psalmist is doing here. And then it comes to its climax in verse 7. Look at the text. Tremble. Tremble. Tremble, tremble earth at the presence of the Lord. 
And I want you to see this for yourself. Look at the word of God. The psalmist says to inanimate creation, you better tremble. You better shake in reverent awe and wonder and fear. You better tremble at the presence of the most powerful, the most glorious, the most exhilarating, the most limitless, the most sovereign being in the universe, the one who does whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, you better tremble in awe. But there is an awful irony in verse 7, an awful irony. The seas get it. The rivers get it. The mountains get it none of which were made in the image of God. Yet when they acknowledge the presence of God, they see the presence of God, they shake in awe and wonder. But mankind, the only part of creation that is said to be made in the image of God, every man and woman bears the image of God God has knit together every human soul with his image. And Romans 1 tells us that God has imprinted, he's emblazoned on every human heart a knowledge of himself. You were created. You were created to acknowledge, to tremble, and to worship Almighty God. But guess what? You are crooked, and I am crooked. And as fallen, sinful people, we fail to acknowledge and tremble at the presence of Almighty God. And I want you to think with me for a minute. Let's think about this biblically so we can appreciate what God has done. The offspring of Abraham, the Israelites, God promised in Genesis 12, he promised Abraham that your descendants, I'm going to multiply them, I'm going to bless them, they're going to have this special land, the promised land. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Yet they found themselves in 400 years of Egyptian bondage. Yet God was moving and working the whole time. And when the time came, God intervenes miraculously. He gives them lambs to be slaughtered and killed instead of their own children. And then he leads them out. He parts the Red Sea, leads his people to freedom, and then comes and dwells among his people. That is glorious. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, something far more glorious is yours. Because the eternal Son of God, who was never created, has always existed, came down in flesh and became a man experienced everything that you experience. He came and subjected himself. He, be, he was the lamb of God who came and shed his blood in our place. Our sin taken upon Jesus on the cross and by faith our sins are accounted for because God poured out his wrath on his son instead of us, but it doesn't stop there. By faith, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is taken off of Jesus Christ, and he says, by faith, here, it's yours. It's yours. Put it on by faith. Put on the bulletproof righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when his father looks at you on judgment day, he says, I see perfection. I see the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's bulletproof. It's bulletproof. 
But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. He parted the sea of death and brings all of those who've trusted in him, he brings us through safely on the other side. But more than that, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, scripture tells us that the very spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in you. You are the Kodesh. You have Jesus Christ in you. And that is a guarantee, brothers and sisters. The spirit of Jesus Christ is a guarantee that you will persevere, that you will stay in the faith. And thank God, because if it was up to me to be faithful, I'd be in big trouble, amen? Psalm 114 is absolutely about God's miraculous power and might in rescuing his people Israel, but is also pointing us ahead to a far greater miracle, the atonement brought by Jesus Christ. Now the Bible demonstrates to us that Jesus was God. Jesus himself made that claim. That's ultimately why he was hung on a cross, because he claimed to be God. He, him, a mere man claiming to be God. The priests tore their robes in disgust and said, crucify him. What else do you need to hear? Jesus demonstrates his divinity in the Gospels. You read the Gospels and you see Jesus healing the sick, giving sight to the blind. He calms a storm. He looks into the depths of a grave and says, Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man comes walking out. Make no mistake, Jesus displays his divinity in the Scriptures. But while the Father displays his might in rescuing his people Israel, Jesus displays his glory by restraining his power to rescue us. I must have read the Gospel of John six or seven times before I realized the glory of John 18, verse 6. It'll be up on the screen, but if you want to turn over there yourself and see it for yourself, I would encourage you to do that. So in John's gospel, chapter 18, in chapter 17, Jesus is pouring out his heart to the Father. He's praying that we would experience oneness as the body of Christ the same way he has it with his Father. And then in chapter 18, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's with his disciples. And then all of a sudden, this mob comes. In the early hours of the morning, they come to get Jesus. John 18, picking up with verse 3. So Judas, having procured a, brand, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This is an armed lynch mob. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Eyewitness, John, says this. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Ever read that before? Ever marvel at that before? So think with me. Professional soldiers with their weapons, lynch mob, come to get Jesus. They say, Jesus says, who are you looking for? We want Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. I am he. You looking for Jesus? That's me. I am he. And then all of a sudden, boom! They fall on the ground. They can't even stay upright in the presence of Jesus Christ. That is glory. That is glory. And you remember what happens? Remember Peter, always getting crazy, pulls out his sword, lops the guy's ear off, and Jesus says, what are you doing, dude? 
He picks up the ear, heals the man, and he says, Pete, you don't think I could call down a legion of angels and eviscerate these fools. They would be gone. I could wipe them out in an instant. And yet Jesus said, go ahead, cuff me, take me in. He willingly goes, knowing the crown of thorns is coming, knowing the whippings are coming, knowing six agonizing hours on the cross is coming, he goes anyway. He restrains his glory. He restrains his power. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? He did it for you. Because if he didn't restrain his power, if he didn't subject himself to that, you would still be dead in your sin with no hope in the world. Now I want you to see what happens when a spiritually dead, godless man encounters the glory of restrained power. Matthew 27, he records the moment that Jesus died. He says this, and the earth shook, or dare we say trembled. The earth trembled and the rocks were split. The earth sees it. They see the glory. They see the slain son of God dead on the cross. The earth shakes. Matthew continues, when the centurion, that's a professional Roman army officer, who's presiding over the crucifixion. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Is that incredible? Truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion trembled at the glory of Jesus Christ and acknowledged who he was. And we should all follow the example of the centurion. Lesson number three this morning. Tremble at the glory of Jesus Christ. Tremble. Tremble. Tremble at the slain son of God who limited his power in order to save you. Tremble at the glory of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to respond to this message in one of two ways. If you are here this morning and you have not yet personally grappled with the reality of your own sin, maybe you came in this morning thinking you were a Christian, but the Spirit of God has come and let you know that you are not a Christian because you have not personally grappled and dealt with your sin, I have good news for you. Even though the righteous God of the universe is justifiably outraged at your sin, he has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. It was his son. Jesus did everything that was necessary for your salvation. He offers it to you and he says, just trust me. Receive it by faith. You can do that this morning. Turn away from your sin, acknowledge your sin and say, Jesus, I trust you and you alone. And the Bible says, if you mean that in your heart, you're willing to confess that with your mouth and you will be saved. Now, if you have already done that, if you are a Christian here this morning, I invite you to respond by trembling at the awe of Jesus Christ. Tremble at the awe of Jesus Christ. Now something happens to Christians. When you've been a Christian for a little while, you've been to church, you, know, you sing the music, you listen to the songs, you go to Bible study, but all of a sudden, you just get complacent. And you say, Brennan, you know what? It's just natural, it just comes with the territory, it's part of being a Christian, it's part of the Christian life because familiarity breeds complacency. Well, I have to tell you, I respectfully disagree. I respectfully disagree. And so does the great 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon. 
He wrote this. Awe is not cast out by faith, but rather it becomes deeper and more profound. The Lord is most revered when he is most loved. To that, I would simply add, and he is most loved when he is most known. When he is most known. My invitation to you, Christian, is to commit or recommit yourself to pursuing Jesus Christ. Study his life. Read the scriptures. Know him more and more because the more you know him, the more you're going to love him, and the more you love him, the more you're going to stand in awe at his glory, and you will find that he is truly the only thing that can satisfy you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the glory of the cross. Father, I pray that through the power of your spirit, you would impress your word on our hearts in such a way that we would leave these doors in awe of the majesty of Jesus Christ. I ask this in his name, amen.